two things right away. There, there are characteristics that define the audience that Jesus has in mind. First, they are people who trust in themselves that they are righteous before God. And we should ask the question, what exactly does that mean? It means that when they took an evaluation of their lives, they came to the conclusion that their relationship with God was a good one. They believed they had a healthy relationship with God. Now, God is holy and righteous. He is not immoral or evil. And in order to have a good relationship with Him, a person must be righteous. A person must be righteous. God is not going to have a good relationship with someone who is unrighteous, who is immoral, who is evil. These, then, are people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And what they meant by that, that their relationship with God was good. And when it says that they trusted in themselves, it means that when they considered the morality of how they lived their own lives, the goodness of who they were as people, they determined that there was enough goodness there to believe that their relationship with God was okay. Probably better than okay. That's the first characteristic of these people. And then the second characteristic of the audience is that they despised others. And just so we're on the same page, let's make sure that we understand what this is saying. It doesn't mean that they hated other people. It doesn't say that. It doesn't mean they were cruel to these other people. It means that in light of what they were considering, namely, who is righteous before God and who isn't, there were certain other people who were easy examples of what wasn't righteous. They were easily, immediately dismissed. They, they knew that th those people didn't qualify because of those certain people, those people, it was obvious to tell that they were not okay with God. And so they didn't account for those people at all. They despised them. They didn't matter. They just dismissed them. They saw those people, if, if, you, if you're with me, as, as incomparable, not comparable, to themselves. Think of an athlete who's really, really good at something, and he sees someone who can't walk and chew gum at the same time, kind of fumbling around at trying to do this thing that for him just comes so naturally and so easy, and he just kind of shakes his head and chuckles, you know? It's just a dismissal, like, <laughs> you know? Or, you know, my daughter's in a speech class, and she's, she's, got, she's a little bit like Dad, I guess. She's not too, too shy about standing up and talking in front of other people. Think about being in a speech class, and everybody's preparing speeches, and you're sitting there feeling very confident about, I'm going to stand up, I'm going to give a good speech, and then you see someone stand up, and they're all red in the face, 
and they're kind of looking down and stumbling over their words, and they get lost, and you can see sweat pouring down, and you just kind of shake your hand, and you say, this person is not a public speaker. You know, no amount of classroom work is going gonna, is gonna to change it at this point, right? It's just an immediate dismissal. I like to think of a car guy, because I'm not a car guy, that just shakes his head at the guy who can't change a tire and can't change his oil. And he's just like, this is just immediate dismissal. That is the picture. That's the kind of people we're talking about. These are people whom Jesus is speaking to who look at their own lives and then they look at the lives of certain other people and they see a sinfulness in other people that is incomparable to what they find in themselves. So this is the setup. Now the characters of the story are going to be very important. Who are these two men that Jesus is talking about? Well, verse 10 tells us that one is a tax collector and one is a Pharisee. We don't have either one of those two classes of people in our world today. So I'm going to try to describe them to you for a moment. A Pharisee was a religious person. To be a Pharisee was a religious job. It was a vocation. It was how... You made a livelihood. It was a real thing. They were responsible for knowing the Bible at the time, the Old Testament, the law of God, the prophets. In fact, these were the experts, and Pharisees were very eager to see people converted to their view of the Scriptures so that in being converted, they could become righteous before God too. Now, we have pastors and and preachers and evangelists, and we have plenty of religious people today, but we're not ancient Israelites. And, and the power over day-to-day living that a Pharisee, which was sometimes called a ruler in the Bible, the power that a Pharisee had in the lives of people in a day-to-day basis is not really comparable to anything that, that I'm familiar with around here. So on the one hand, we have this Pharisee, which is this super religious, authoritative position, And then we have a tax collector. Now, a tax collector, I think this is really interesting, was a Jewish person who had taken up the cause of the Roman Empire. You probably know if you've been around church for any point of time that when Jesus walked the face of the earth that the Romans were the dominant world empire of the day. None of you probably escaped the book of Daniel and all that study without getting that much out of it. The Romans had conquered the Holy Land and... They had imposed taxes, and the tax collectors were considered traitors. And at first, that might not seem obvious. Why would the tax collectors be considered traitors? And I'm going to try to explain this. Again, I think this is really interesting. The Romans had a unique way of doing their taxes. It wasn't, a tax collector was not like the IRS today. A tax collector was a person who agreed to pay a fixed, a set amount of money to Rome, to the Roman treasury, from the region that they were collecting taxes in. So that let's you know, I'm going to pay $50,000 to re- for the region the area of tax money and basically they were purchasing a contract. They were purchasing the right to collect taxes on behalf of Rome in that area. Now, whatever they collected beyond that $50,000, the Romans didn't care about. It was theirs to keep. So that, that was their way of doing this. And so if you were a tax collector, if that was your profession, Rome had said, look, we think this territory should owe 
this much money in taxes. We think that looking at the population and the commerce and the people, this is a $50,000 territory. If you were a tax collector, you said, all right, I'll pay the $50,000. But then you were making your living, you were making your money by trying to go collect taxes well in excess of that. Um, of you collected 70, you got to keep the balance, the 20. You say, well, you know, $20,000, you can't really live on that annually very easily. Well, well, if you collected 100, you got to keep the 50. If you collected the 200, you got to keep 150. And it was fine with Rome. They got what was in the treasury. And as a tax collector, you were a Roman official. So there really wasn't anything anybody could do to you about this. If you didn't pay the tax that this guy said you owed, he'd report you to the local garrison, to the Roman authorities, and... You were a, a, a tax cheat in the eyes of the government. You were in big trouble. Now, you can imagine that, that these figures then were not super popular people, right? They're profiting off trying to get as much tax money as they can for their own gain. Okay, so we have two very different people in this parable from Jesus. Now, this is a really important part of the story. It says that they went up to the temple to pray. We, we don't have a building in all the world today like the temple. There's nothing like it. Not just in terms of whatever grandiousness represents. That's, we don't have a building of spiritual significance like the temple today. This is certainly not it. If this building were meant to represent the grandness of God, we would all be in big trouble. It's not, that's not what it's meant to represent. We don't have anything like this. We believe that we can have fellowship with God directly through the Holy Spirit who comes and dwells with us in our lives when we trust Jesus as our Savior. That's one of the promises that Jesus has made to us, that when we become a Christian, when we put our faith in Jesus, we are not on our own. It's not simply about our own discipline or our own intelligence, but that the Holy Spirit comes and dwells with us in our lives. God dwells with us through His Spirit but in Jesus' day, it was not the same. In fact, the Old Testament had set up a system whereby people who wanted to meet with God would travel to a temple where there would be a priest who would mediate their relationship to God, who would stand between them and God and try to mediate, try to reconcile the two. And this was done through offerings because their sin had to be dealt with. So when we read here that these two men went up to the temple to pray, we really have to try our best to imagine a situation that's very, very different from anything that we experience as Christians. These guys were not going to church. They weren't going to church. They were traveling perhaps a very long way so that they could stand before their God and give an account to him for their sin. That's why they would bring offerings and sacrifices. It's a very different picture. It's significant, I think, that as Jesus is telling this parable about these two guys going to the temple in Jerusalem to stand before God, to give a, a, an offering and a sacrifice to the priest so that they might be right with God, as he's telling this story to them, he himself is traveling to Jerusalem. He's going there himself. And he's going there for the cross when he's telling this story. In fact, if you look down at verse 31 in Luke 18, 
I know we're skipping ahead. We won't, we won't go to verse 31 today. But he tells his disciples this. It says, Then he took the twelve aside, and he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all the things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. So Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. That was a feast where all the faithful Jews were supposed to go to Jerusalem to stand before God. And he's going there to be crucified, to be offered up as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. Every other faithful Jewish person is also traveling to Jerusalem for the Passover feast so that they can go to the temple to stand before God and offer their sacrifices for their sins. And it is in this context that Jesus tells this story about these two wildly different men who also are preparing to stand before God in the temple and to deal with their sin. Now, in verse 11, our first character meets God at the temple. And as he prays before the presence of God, he says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Here we learn three things. First, he was moral. He doesn't cheat people in business. He doesn't treat people unjustly or unfairly. He's faithful to his wife. He's faithful to the Lord with his body. He's not out there trying to become rich at the expense of others like this tax collector. He is a moral man. He doesn't claim to be a perfect man. He says that in comparison to a lot of other people around him in the world, people like this tax collector, he lives a pretty moral life. He lives a pretty good life. He's a pretty honest guy. He's got a decent life. We also learn that he's a serious person. This whole business of coming to the temple, it's not just a holiday thing for him. When it comes to doing the things that God wants him to do, he's very serious about it. He has an understanding of what these things are from his Bible. And twice a week, he is fasting and praying. That's a lot. That's a lot. Two out of every seven days, he's doing this. It also says that he gives a tithe. The word tithe means literally 10%. He's talking about a percentage. He gives a tithe, but notice, of everything he owns. He's not giving a tithe of his income. He gives tithes of, of all his possessions. That's really serious. I mean, can you imagine if you were doing something like that? I mean, we pay taxes on income. We usually give offerings and things like that off income. Can you imagine taking a regular account of all your possessions and being like, okay, 10% of the value, I'm giving it. This guy is very serious about what he believes God has required of him. And finally, we notice that this man is also grateful to God. 
that he is not like other men. In other words, it appears to me that the man is willing to give God the credit for making his life moral and making his life pure. If not for God, who knows where this man would be? That's the idea. I'm really thankful that I'm not a bad person. He's not saying, I have made myself a moral person. I have made myself a good person. I don't need God's help. I'm a good person on my own. No, he is thanking God for making him who he is. He is giving God credit, it seems to me. This is the Pharisee. Now we turn our attention to the tax collector, the other character in the story. This tax collector stands afar off, it says. He doesn't come to the heart of the temple where the Pharisee would have been up front. He is in the back of the room, not because he's disinterested, not because his plan is to fall asleep and daydream as all of the religious stuff is going on with everyone, but because he knows that his place is not up front with the good religious people, with the priests and the people and the offerings and everything. He knows that his life does not merit, does not deserve that sort of place before God. In fact, it says he would not even lift up his head. He is humble in a way that's not a fake kind of humility. He genuinely does not believe that he belongs there. And there were probably a lot of people who agreed with him. Hey, he doesn't belong there. He genuinely doesn't believe that his life deserves any of God's attention. Certainly not in a positive way. If God's paying any attention to him, it's because there's some kind of judgment or punishment coming. It's not because something good is going to happen. It seems as if it is very difficult when you read this, when you hear from Jesus. It seems like it's very difficult for him to even be here at all. Not because he would rather be you know, off doing something else, but because he knows that he does not deserve to have his sins forgiven. And that's what you came to the temple to do. You came to the temple to offer your sacrifices. They called those offerings sin offerings, guilt offerings. And he knows that he doesn't deserve that. He appears broken over his sin. It says he beats his breast. So this trip to the temple for him, probably around one of the feasts, I would assume Jesus had the Passover feast in mind, since that's what he's going to the temple for. But it's not a holiday for the tax collector. It's not the holiday that it might have been for the Pharisee. Because when the tax collector arrives, he is hoping to meet a God that he knows is not pleased with him. Why? Because, like I said, and we have to come back to this over and over in order to have a good relationship with God, who is righteous, who is holy, you must be a holy and righteous person. And unlike the Pharisee, the tax collector knows 
that he is not a righteous person. He is an immoral person. He is a bad person. He is the kind of person that other people look at to assure themselves that they are not that bad. And when he sees his brokenness, he beats his chest. And we are meant to see a man here at his breaking point. He is not happy with his life. He does not love his life. It may have enriched him. He may have many nice things, but he has come to the temple with the hope, however unlikely, that God will forgive him for everything that he has done. That God will bless him. That God will love him. That God will save him. That's why everybody went to the temple. So he's going to, with that hope, that God will give him a lasting happiness and a peace that his money has not provided. He is at a personal breaking point. He's having a meltdown in the back of the room. And we know this because the end of verse 13 tells us that his only words to God are, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He is a strange sight to look at in the temple. Standing in the back with his head down on a holiday, beating his chest and praying to God for mercy because of all of his sin. Well, these are our two characters. Let's hear Jesus' conclusion. Verse 14 says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. As Christian people, we are not surprised by the fact that God is willing to save the tax collector, are we? This is not a shocking, praise God, this is not a shocking thing to us. What Jesus is saying here is that this man, this second man, goes down to his house justified. What does the word justified mean? What does that mean? It means in the eyes of God, when this man went home, he was righteous. The Greek word justified means to render righteous. It's the verb form of the word righteous. It is to make one righteous, to declare one righteous. If you are accused of a crime and you stood before a judge and the judge says, this person is not guilty, this is the kind of word you would use. This person is right. They're not wrong. They're not guilty. They are right. The tax collector went home righteous in the eyes of the only person who ultimately matters, God. He went home a righteous man. You say, wait a minute. I get what you're saying, I think. But how is the tax collector holy and righteous? Well, I'll try to, I'll try to summarize this. The sacrifice that he took to the temple, the one that he offered to God, was acceptable. His offering that he made to God for his sins was accepted by God. God received it. 
his immorality was forgiven. And if his immorality is forgiven, if his sins are completely dealt with, then what's left but righteousness? He, he went home righteous. That's the idea. In the time and the place of the man in the temple. His sin is gone in the record books of God. He went to the temple with the sacrifice, hoping, believing that God would accept his sacrifice and show him great mercy by forgiving his sin, and that is what we read God has done. Here is what David said about God after he committed adultery and murdered someone. Now just stop, just pause there for a second. And make sure you heard that and, and you actually got that message. He committed adultery and murdered, murdered someone. Those are not righteous. Right? I mean, here is what David said. This is Psalm 51. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation. And my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. The tax collector has come with a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. It's a heart that is sorry for what it's done. A heart that's ready to turn away from sin. And in Jesus' story, the tax collector is despised by the Pharisee, but the Bible says that God does not despise the person who offers him these things. And you may be here this morning feeling the weight of your own sinfulness. Knowing that you are not a good person. And that God who is righteous cannot be happy with you. And the Lord would tell you that he actually loves sinners. And he's shown that love by sending his son to the cross for you. I want to talk about this for a moment because it's important that you understand it. This is the great Christian teaching called substitutionary atonement. Sounds like such a difficult name. So complicated. But it's actually very simple. Substitutionary is the word used because Jesus is our substitute dying for our sin. We deserve God's wrath. The tax collector knew it. If you're here this morning, I hope you know it. We deserve God's anger. We deserve God's judgment because of our sin. But the tax collector cries out for mercy. And God says that he went home righteous. And we ask, on what grounds can a holy and righteous judge declare a sinful man to be righteous? Is God a liar that he can look at a sinner like a tax collector and say, righteous? 
How can God call this man righteous when he is a sinner? Well, God can call this man righteous because Jesus has been substituted into the legal process on account of this man's sin. And Jesus is not guilty. Jesus is righteous. And so when he, when Jesus is substituted into God's judgment at the cross, he willingly bears the punishment that this man, that we deserve. He has subbed in for us at the cross. God has said that because of our sin, we shall die. Jesus did not sin. But God has has caused Jesus to raise his hand and to offer to die in our place. That's the substitution. And God, seeing his righteous son volunteer himself to suffer for us, has decided to accept this offering that Jesus has made for us. God, seeing Jesus raise his hand and say, I will do this, God has chosen to accept the offering of the only righteous man. God has said that what Jesus did, being perfectly righteous, is enough, in fact, for all of the world, for all of it. And this is where the word atonement comes from. We are no longer guilty sinners before God. But instead, we have peace with God because Jesus has given us His righteous record to go to court with. This is where the parable hits home. I am not righteous in and of myself, no matter how I compare to anybody else, no matter how good a life I think that I'm living. I'm not righteous, but Jesus is. The choir saying, fairest Lord Jesus, ruler of all nature, O thou of God and man the Son, thee will I cherish, thee will I honor, thou my soul's glory, joy, and crown. Fair are the meadows. It's pretty to look out at creation. You can learn a lot about God from creation. You can see all the evidence of design in creation. You can learn about God's greatness and His power. Fair still the woodlands, robed in the blooming garb of spring. Jesus is fair. Jesus is pure, who makes the woeful heart to sing. That's the tax collector in the back of the room. The woeful heart. The man beating his chest. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. The Bible tells us that Jesus was not handsome. That he wasn't drawing people to himself with his personal charisma. And when we sing about the fairness of Jesus, when we sing about the glory of Jesus, what exactly is it that we're singing about? It's about the righteousness of Jesus.
For if God can be seen in our observation of the natural world, if the evidence of an orderly, good creation points to a God who is powerful and intelligent and wise, if the strength of God can be seen in creation, the goodness of God is seen in Jesus. If we go back to the parable for a moment, you'll see that the main point Jesus is making is not merely that this tax collector has been made righteous. That's not his main point. But rather, the shocking point in the text is that the Pharisee is not. He is not righteous. The tax collector is going to heaven. The Pharisee is going to hell. How is the moral, dedicated Pharisee who gives God the credit for who he is going to hell? Because he trusted in himself that he was righteous. And he wasn't. And he bolsters his confidence by comparing himself to others. But he wasn't righteous. He was even willing to say that God had made him this righteous. He's willing to give God the credit for it. Credit for which God does not want because he isn't righteous. But the righteousness that he placed his trust in is still all his own. He's not trusting in God's mercy. He's not trusting in God's goodness. He is trusting in his own goodness. It is a self-exaltation, as opposed to the humility and the brokenness of the tax collector who knew that he had no hope of saying, I'm righteous. And that's you and that's me. We have no hope of saying, I'm righteous. Not really. Not in the sum of it all. Not in the balance of it all. We need a Savior because we have no hope of righteousness. Jesus is who we must trust. Jesus is all the word of God, all the instruction of God, all the morality of God, incarnate into a human being who represents the perfection of God in the flesh. When John writes, and we beheld his glory, the word became flesh and we beheld his glory, he's not talking about the fact that Jesus did miraculous things. The disciples did miraculous things. He's not talking about the fact that Jesus was a really smart teacher. He's talking about in the person of Jesus, we lived with, we dwelt with, we watched a righteousness that cannot be found in man. So much so that it is the glory of God in Christ. It was as if we were watching all the goodness of God's word lived out in the life of a human being. Jesus. 
I am the sinner crying out to God, please be merciful to me. Whether before or after my salvation, at no point is it okay for me to look at my life and place my trust in whatever I see here. As the song goes, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. What, what does it mean, frame? Like when you build something and you put a frame together? No, no, no. I don't look at my life and see a single thing that I've built. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, the most beautiful thing, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Because God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In him. In Jesus. Not in me. I don't become the righteousness of God because I become a Christian and God starts to do good things in my life. No, 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 no. I become the righteous, redeemed, holy child of God in Jesus. There is nothing to stand on in here. Nothing. The only righteousness that will reconcile me to a holy God who I will meet when I die is the goodness of Jesus, not the goodness of Reggie. The simple message of the Bible, clear and unwavering, is that we will not find the righteousness, the righteousness we need in ourselves. It can only be found in Christ that's why we are called to trust Him, to put our faith in Him. It is why we will go to heaven when we die. It is the only way to God. Let's pray. Father, I am very grateful for your son, Jesus. And not only what he has done for us, but his true character and divinity and righteousness that has allowed him to do what he has done for us. And being the one sacrifice that fulfilled all of the sacrifices offered before him, throughout the Old Testament by being the one Lamb of God whom you have accepted as payment for sin. And I pray, Father, that we will see in the person of Jesus what John is trying to describe to us in his gospel. Something so glorious that he is worth living for, he is worth dying for, 
He is worthy of trust and respect. He is worthy of devotion, so much so that even if it means the upheaval of our lives and radical change of how we live, He is worth it because of who He is, the revelation of yourself in flesh, and what He has done. I ask, Father, that He will return soon to the earth so that things may be set right and so that there may be peace. Father, I pray that while we await His return, that we will not be quiet about the message of heaven and hell and our need for a Savior. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.